Welcome to the 12th episode of Flashpoint Podcast. I am Owen Higgins, your host. Uh, you can find the print edition at owenhiggins.substack.com. That's E-O-I-N substack.com. That's the Flashpoint newsletter. Uh, it's January 13th, Thursday, and I am joined by Q. Anthony Omeni, a writer and political commentator in Canada who, who hosts two co-hosts two podcasts here is that right that's right yeah I, uh yeah oh can you hear me i can hear you yeah you're a little low oh, okay uh i'll try to speak closer to the microphone but yeah uh so i co-host uh the unredacted podcast with glenn greenwald and also co-host the uh drop squad uh podcast uh with Rennie ture and uh jamel love excellent excellent so um yeah so we've been wanting to do a show together for a little while. And um, I think we found a pretty good topic here, which is we're going to be talking about the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Uh, this is an organization that is based in Australia uh, that, well, we'll talk about a lot of what it does, but it it has ties to a lot of U.S. defense industry players. It uh, has ties to the U.S. government and the Australian government. And it is certainly pushing a particularly right-wing point of view uh, with respect. I wouldn't even necessarily say right-wing. It's a very interventionist. uh, it's, It's essentially a collection of uh, players that are, uh, you know, endemic to the defense industry, to the business of war and intervention. Uh, you know, it's a think tank that's funded by, among other groups, the U.S. Department of Defense. It's funded by Northrop Grumman, uh, funded by Raytheon, as well as like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Talis, uh, and Saab, and not not. Um, not everybody knows that Saab is uh, not only an automobile manufacturer, but also an aerospace company. So they deal with uh, fighter jets and radars and missile guidance systems and so forth. So yeah, the, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute is essentially like it's like a it's it's like the bottom of the money funnel um, for these organizations. It's like the sum total um, of the uh, the business of foreign intervention and it exists to launder and whitewash uh imperialist policy under the guise of protecting national security uh protecting digital security and defending human rights yeah well i think that you know any think tank that is going to promote interventionist imperialist policies is going to frame their mission that way for sure. Um, so let's, but let's back up. Let's let's kind of explain to people exactly wh- who who's behind this group and and where they're from. And like, obviously, they're from Australia. But but who who are the members and what are their roles, kind of in Australian civic society and uh, in corporate society and and defense. Um, so. You're pretty knowledgeable about this. You want to walk us through a little bit the group's formation and and who's there? Yeah, so <laughs> it's it's uh when I when I started going down like the ASPI rabbit hole, I found it really interesting because uh for the most part the organization is uh it's it's staffed almost top to bottom um with uh former government officials, uh bureaucrats cabinet officials, people who served in uh, government ministries, particularly with regards to uh, defense and foreign policy. Uh, it's also, you know, uh, professors from heavily neoliberal institutions in the United States, uh, people who worked formally with the FBI, the CIA. Uh, there is fellows who are attached to much larger companies that also have an interest in the defense industry. Um, and it's uh, it's run by Peter Jennings, who uh, is himself a uh, former government apparatchik and uh, was a uh, a 
well-known Australian warhawk. So it's, uh, it's funny how there's like a confluence of interests where um, former politicians and uh, you know uh, bureaucrats who publicly existed on sort of the, the neoliberal right get together with ostensible and purported progressives and one thing that they can all agree on is that the world is in need of more intervention from uh, state actors, uh, mostly like NATO aligned state actors, but also um, heavily pushing the, uh, the, the AUKUS partnership that is Australia, the UK, and the United States, um, that their interests align in defending their respective national security. But it's also interesting to see how as um, an economic zone develops in South and East Asia and in the Pacific that is increasingly becoming self-contained. That is, uh, goods can be manufactured in the region uh, with materials that are drawn from the region and also from uh, Africa as well. Um, that they're made into finished products in the region and they're consumed in the region. So you, you'll, you'll see that uh, China is a really good example of this, is moving uh, in, in great strides towards a level of post-industrialism. I mean, it's not, it's not there yet. It's not there by a long shot. But um, it, it is developing a massive consumer economy. And uh, I've, I've always found it interesting that as the consumer economy in China develops, and as a burgeoning consumer economy uh, develops in uh, countries like uh, you know, Vietnam, uh, even you know, uh, countries like uh, Laos and Cambodia, which you, you know, just reading Western news, you think that these are have, have always been and will continue to be desperately poor countries. But you know, there is a burgeoning middle class in, in many of these countries, and uh, as as those economies develop, that's when you see this uh, ratcheting up of interventionist rhetoric from Western states. Uh, there's this belief that uh, China is attempting to engage in not only the type of colonialism, because when colonialism was done by the United States, uh, Britain, France, etc., you know, it was benevolent. They were civilizing the savages. But when China does it, it is genocide. It's human rights abuse and so forth. And the interesting part about that is that you don't see an attempt to uh, shape the cultural standards or norms of any other nation. You don't see an attempt to unduly influence governments or uh, seize assets and resources and so forth. But because we have this idea of what colonization looks like due to our own experiences with it, uh, either at the effect of or having previously supported, uh, we simply map those experiences over to um, the global south and any of the countries that are developing uh, uh, larger and more powerful economies and assume that it can only be done that way. And what the ASPI exists to do is uh, not only reinforce that notion um, by continually accusing uh, countries in the global south of uh, everything from colonialism to uh, draconian human rights abuses, etc., but also to, um, also to reinforce the notion that uh, these countries, that is uh, what we call developed countries, need to increasingly funnel larger portions of their uh, their their GDP into defense industry spending against this foreign threat. Yeah, so so there's a lot there. Um, let's go. I guess the first thing is to just talk a little bit. Um, if we can go back to to Jennings himself, um, and you know, I was reading his bio here on uh, on ASP I, and. It says that he's been the executive director since May 2012, and that in his position there, he has expanded the role uh, to include research on cybersecurity, uh, international law enforcement, border security, policing, national resilience, and counterterrorism studies. Now, one of the things that we were talking about when we were first discussing doing this show was the way that ASPI is working to kind of influence social media and the the way the information about this region 
is being understood. And I think that it's interesting. I mean, Australia is in a seems to be in a unique position uh, as opposed to the other countries like the UK and the US here in that, you know, it is part of this economic zone that you're referring to. It is part of uh, this large geographic, like, you know, if you put like one border as Africa and then, you know, going around Asia to China and then kind of bordering it from Oceania, if, if that's how you pronounce it, I've never really actually known, but um, Australia is part of that. So is is ASBI is part of their work to kind of try to convince people in the country that uh, that they need to be more hostile towards these actors because it seems that the economics of their location and you know just who they trade with means that they are going to be like necessarily have 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 a bit of a different perspective on it from from their government's point of view. Sorry, I'm not quite sure what the question is there. Sorry about that. Yeah, you also have to keep in mind that. Well, the que- not, let, let, let me let me just. I'm not an incredibly yeah. smart person. I'm just somebody who reads a lot. Yeah, well, I think that the question that I'm trying to ask is, you know, we're talking about Akas and we're talking about um, ASPI's role in shaping opinion on. The countries in this economic zone, this, um, I don't really, like Indian Ocean economic zone, I guess, mm-hmm. you could kind of call it, like, like, like generally. Right. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, how much of that is about how they're trying to shape opinion in Australia, because for people in Australia, you know, their, their economy and their culture and their government uh you know like they like they're they're more close to china and uh asia in general than the us and the uk are so obviously their 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 economy and their politics are going to be a little bit different as you know with with respect to how they interact with those countries despite the efforts uh to to pull them to a more hostile approach. So I'm just yeah. wondering if, if AS is ASPI aimed at Australia or is what they're doing aimed at the the world in general. It's aimed at exporting the Austra- the Australian view of China which has been I mean fraught with tension for for uh, for decades now. Uh, they they did have a uh a previously a close uh, trading relationship and I would say that um it began to deteriorate uh during uh Xi Jinping's leadership or during his uh, tenure uh, as general secretary um like it's it's almost i don't know i, I guess the best way to put it is almost like uh <laughs> what's coming to mind is uh lord of the rings uh you know how how uh, Gollum loves the one ring but he also hates it um so there's there's a lot intertwining uh australia china relations from an economic sense um and from 2009 to 2019, <clears throat> about 110 billion dollars U.S. dollars, um, there, there was an increase in Australian exports to China. Um, a lot of that is uh, iron ore, um, and that's due to uh, China's uh, construction boom. Uh, which, if you listen to you know uh, foreign policy, you listen to Financial Times, etc., you know they're always saying that the financial collapses around the corner never seems to come. Um, there's also uh, coal, there's gas, uh, and also um, uh, there are many uh, Chinese students uh, that are in Australia on student visas. But uh, ar- around 2017, I would say, is when things began to increasingly deteriorate. And in April 2020, uh, the Australian government um, made a, a call to determine what what is the origin of the uh, the COVID nineteen virus did it did it actually uh, come from a Wuhan lab leak? So uh, Scott Morrison uh, and this was after uh, trade with <clears throat> trade ties with China became uh, were becoming increasingly strained. I mean this wasn't uh, um, this this wasn't out of nowhere. This was in April of twenty twenty uh, that uh, that Scott Morrison asked for an international investigation into 
the uh, the accused Wuhan lab leak. And after that announcement, uh, that's when things just really uh, fell right off the cliff, right? So uh, immediately after uh, Scott Morrison's uh, press conference, uh, Beijing denounced it as uh, essentially uh, it's it was it was geopolitical racism. It was uh, looking for uh, a scapegoat, etc. And hey, this is this has been. Uh, a constant back and forth, sort of in the background, as we as we uh, deal with the long-lasting effects of COVID, is how did this virus escape into the general public in the first place? Did it come from a Wuhan lab leak? And then, government of China says it was not a lab leak. Um, we still don't know the origins of it, and so on and so on. And we're just never going to get to the bottom of that. But Australia took a very firm stance that um, it, it did come from China. It did come from the lab leak. Uh, other problem is that. Uh, the uh, and I, I hesitate to say this not because it there isn't validity or that it shouldn't be investigated, but only because the way that you phrase it is so fraught with meaning, and that is uh, the um, the alleged uh, genocide against Uyghur people in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Uh, Australia was one of the countries that took a very hard stance that uh, there. There was a genocide happening, um, and the ASPI was one of the leading institutions that not only through its own means uh, made accusations of forced sterilization, of uh, disappearance, of uh, human rights abuses happening in what amounted to be concentration camps, but also uh, funded other organizations that were looking into things like bulldozed mosques that were taking uh, aerial and uh, satellite images of uh, areas of Xinjiang where they would see like uh, the minaret on the top of a building and assume that a mosque was there and then another picture from say two or three months later showed that there was no minaret on the building therefore no mosque, the mosque is gone. So the conclusion it came to was that um, that China was, was bulldozing mosques. There was also uh, things like uh, prisoner transfers. Um, anytime that you would see like uh, people in uniform you know, seated on the ground, waiting at a train station uh, to be transported somewhere else, the assumption was that uh, they were Uyghur people that were being uh, forcibly removed from the Xinjiang region. Uh, there were people who worked with and uh, people who worked with organizations that partnered with the ASPI that were propagating uh, these stories uh, as recently as last year. But then you also have uh, for example, the, uh, the World Uyghur Congress, which does partner with the ASPI, uh, there's uh, you, you'll see this person's name up, come up quite a bit. Uh, Adrian Zenz. Uh, they sort of like have a symbiotic relationship. That is Adrian Zenz and the ASPI, uh, where they would pass information back and forth to each other and essentially signal boost each other's stories into what is essentially like a, a conventional wisdom that became reality. Um, there was also a human rights project uh, out of the University of British Columbia that was heavily uh, supported by and uh, heavily resourced by, that is, uh, many citations uh, and studies and white papers were provided by the ASPI to uh, the, the University of uh, British Columbia uh, in order to properly document uh, the human rights abuses that were happening in, in Xinjiang. So it's not as though the ASPI is a, a lone actor um, that you know, is able to propagate a message and has now been able to influence uh, Twitter's anti-misinformation policy. But it is essentially the seedbed uh, for providing these very hawkish talking points, these these, uh, these tough stances uh, on China. Uh, what they've been able to do with Twitter, and there's actually like a, uh, a page that was uh, published on the 2nd of December, 2021, uh, where Twitter talks about the... Um, state-linked information operations that were removed from the site. So in uh, partnership with the ASPI, as well as Cazadores to Fake News, we'll get into them in a second, the Stanford Inf Internet Observatory, um, you know, they, they removed what they deemed to be misinformation uh, coming from several countries. So in Mexico, for example, they say that they removed a network of 276 inauthentic accounts that uh, shared civic content in support of government initiatives related to public health and political parties. Let's stick a pin in that for a second. We'll come back to it. Uh, in the People's Republic of China, they removed a network of accounts that amplified Chinese Communist Party narratives related to the treatment of the Uyghur population in Xinjiang. Uh, they also released a representative sample of 2,048 accounts 
they removed the network of 112, 112 accounts connected to Chengyu Culture, uh, which is a private company backed by the Xinjiang regional government. Uh, in Russia, they removed a network of 16 accounts linked to the IRA that attempted an information operation in the Central African Republic. Uh, they also removed a network of 50 accounts that attacked the, Sibian, uh, the, Lib the civilian Libyan government and actors that support it while voicing significant support for Russia's geopolitical position in Libya and Syria. Stick a pin in debt. We'll come back to that too. Um, in Venezuela, uh, and, and I found this, I, I found this one, I mean, I, I, I was having a hard time figuring out what was the justification for this, but they removed the network of 277 Venezuelan accounts that amplified accounts, hashtags, and topics in support of the government and its official narratives. Uh, many of the individuals behind this abuse had authorized an app, Twitter Patria, to access their accounts and timelines. Yeah, and you know, I, I, yeah. I, do, I, I do just want to, like, interject here to say that, you know, one of the things when we were, when we were discussing, like, doing, uh, doing this topic, I mean, one thing that really popped out of me when I was looking at at these uh because because this is on twitter like this is like official what you're quoting right. here is official you know official twitter statement page published by twitter yeah yeah like you know the things that the reasoning um like yeah like they have like certain specifics um for certain countries but the general idea that countries uh amplifying uh, using social media to amplify their message is something that, you know, these accounts should be banned. Is like, it kind of strikes me that, it, you know, if that's the policy, then you would kind of have to apply that to every country in the world because every country is doing this to one extent or another. I, and that's what I, I wanted to say is like, so you're removing these accounts that you deem to be uh, state-operated or state-linked accounts or accounts that are spreading misinformation or that these accounts are inauthentic. So when you say, for example, that uh, accounts are sharing uh, civic content in Mexico related to public health and political parties, like, uh, does that mean that you're going to, I don't know, like uh, the, you're going to remove the Justice Democrats account and everybody who retweets them? Are you right. going to... Are you going to remove uh, any GOP-related political accounts? Are you going to, like, are you going after Charlie Kirk? Are you going after Prager University? Uh, where it came to uh, the uh, People's Republic of China, um, that was uh, because those accounts, as I said, uh, according to Twitter, amplified Chinese Communist Party narratives related to the treatment of the Uyghur population. So did you, for example... Uh, take down the uh, ICE Twitter account related to treatment of uh, people who were uh, like undocumented immigrants uh, that were held in detention centers and their defense of the practice. Did you take down the accounts of GOP politicians who basically came down hard on the matter and said, well, these people are in our country illegally and they need to be sent back. We need to build the wall. Did you at that time take down Donald Trump's account and where it came to Venezuela uh, amplifying accounts, hashtags, and topics in support of the government and its official narratives. I find that absolutely hilarious because at the very same time, a network of accounts popped up. Uh, that is, uh, after the uh, 2019 election, a network of accounts popped up uh, that were against the Venezuelan government. And you saw uh, people sharing stories uh, and a uh, high degree of, of misinformation, uh, pictures that were dubiously sourced, if not outright false, uh, that were making accusations of human rights abuses, uh, mass slaughter, uh, uh, the, uh, the extrajudicial murder of, uh, of civilian dissenters, um, that the uh, Venezuelan government was, was uh, engaged in bloodshed. Uh, in the lead up to the Bolivian election, uh, which then led to the uh, the Bolivian coup, uh, you saw not only a network of accounts um, that were retweeted by, uh, I guess, like uh, eco activists, like uh, the, the global network of eco activists. Greta Thunberg was was even in on this, as well as uh, many people that uh, went to Davos along with her, um, were accusing the Morales government of. Uh, slashing the Amazon rainforest and displacing indigenous people and allowing the, uh, the, the fire in the Amazon rainforest to burn. So I, I 
to my knowledge, they didn't take down the account of Rios de Pie, which was a fake NGO that was sponsored um, by the, uh, uh, the, the Human Rights Forum, which was founded by the cousin, or Tor Halverson, who was the cousin of uh, Leopoldo Lopez, who is the uh, widely regarded to be the opposition leader in Venezuela. I mean, we don't, we don't even blink at those networks of accounts that are dedicated to spreading misinformation about countries that are under heavy sanction uh, or are uh, being targeted for regime change by NATO countries. We don't say anything about that. But if any accounts are tweeting in support of, I don't know, of government health initiative or uh, the, the development of public housing, uh, the, uh, the laying of high-speed rail infrastructure and talking about whether there is, uh, there, or rather there are human rights abuses happening in the Xinjiang region, those are automatically targeted for deletion because according to Twitter's partners, the ASPI, as well as uh, Casadores de Fake News and uh, the Stanford Internet Observatory, which the idea that any department of Stanford is dedicated towards an objective and fair analysis of what's happening um, on the internet uh, sourced out of global South countries is to me a complete farce. But according to Twitter's partners, you know, these forms of internet activism or even the spreading of information on the internet is uh, dangerous and uh, a threat to uh, whether we can actually consume information and not be affected by propaganda but right. when it comes to Western-based propaganda, this is this is all fair game. It's just it's just part of the plan. Yeah, and you know, I, I think that I'm just gonna I'm just gonna preemptively say, you know, uh, in in expectation of of this kind of criticism, that like if if there's a response here that this sounds like whataboutism, uh, which you know, the, I'm I'm just gonna use the term and not really digress into an interrogation of it, but. Um, you know, like, okay, sure. But I think it's important to understand for people that these social media companies that, that, that I use and that that you use and we all use, um, they, you know, they're based in Western countries. And so they are going to take a Western approach to this stuff, um, which, would be fine if they were, I think, more open and honest about it, but they're, they're not. They kind of frame this as they are presenting people with, you know, a public square in order to kind of talk out ideas and stuff. And I know that this, this has been like an ongoing debate for like, I don't know, seven, eight, ten years probably at this point about, about like whether, you know, the, how much speech, uh, freedom of speech on these private platforms, et cetera, et cetera. And I get all of that. But I think that when we're discussing this kind of stuff, and especially when we're discussing ASPI, it's just important to know like where their where their mentality, where their ideology is coming from. And so I just want to you sent me this uh this ASPI funding. Um and I think that it's like yeah, who, who's who's backing the ASPI? So uh, yeah, so who's have, backing the ASPI? Funders, yeah, and, right. and to what extent they are being funded by them? Exactly. So they have they have uh, ten point six uh, about like, right, exactly. So so you have you have an like you have an Australian think tank, Australia with Australia's strategic importance uh, in the in in the southern Indian Pacific in Oceania there and this this think tank which is you know working to try and influence the australian government and working to uh working with twitter and and others probably other social media companies to kind of try and shape opinion shape world opinion on these issues and they're presenting themselves as australian but they're you know pretty much funded by the us I guess that the I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the whataboutism argument really does apply here because one of you know like like these are U.S. institutions that are pushing 
these narratives and pushing like who who needs to be heard and who doesn't. And so it's important to kind of frame it that way uh, in order to get a good like look at what's going on and a good like a, a, a total look at that. Right. So uh, if you have a look at their um, and I'll, I'll tweet a link to this uh, as soon as the show's over, but there's a uh, uh, an annual report that was released for 2020 2021 uh, that goes into um, you know who who's providing the funding to ASPI and you know what I, I actually do commend them on the level of transparency because not a lot of NGOs actually will break down uh, how well funded they are by uh, out of state actors but I think from I'm I'm guessing that from their point of view, they see it as a good thing. Like we are getting funding from, uh, look at us, we're getting funding from the United States, who is you know the uh, the beacon of and defender of democracy, and we're getting funding from uh, the defense industry, which is keeping us safe from terrorism. So I think like from a certain sclerotic and jaundiced point of view, this can be a good thing. And for anybody who I don't know, like had any reservations about. Uh, the invasion of Iraq or had reservations previously about uh, U.S. foreign adventurism anywhere from like Vietnam to Libya, etc. You look at this and it's like, holy shit, this is just a bunch of like death merchants that are funding this organization. So if you look at the uh, the pie chart uh, that explains um, their sources of revenue for 2020. Then there's also overseas government agencies, uh, the private sector, state and territory government agencies, and so on and so on, which makes up like you know uh, uh, anywhere from like uh, three to seven percent, or sorry, three to five percent. Uh, so it's sorry, one to five percent. It's very small. So if you look at their um, uh, government agencies from abroad that are providing funding, there's the government of Canada. Uh, there's the Embassy of Japan, there's the Netherlands government, there's the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So like I said, this is essentially like NATO and AUKUS uh, funneling money into this institute, which is to me like the sum total of uh, our foreign adventurism and an interventionist problem. Maybe and just, and, and, uh, yeah. sorry, but just to interject, just so everyone knows, like we're not talking about millions coming from uh, Canada uh, UK, no, Japan. No, no, no. Yeah, we're talking about that. Okay, so from Canada, yeah. we're talking about. Okay, so I mean, again, Canada doesn't have that kind of money either, right? So, uh, twenty-two thousand one hundred dollars came from Canada, uh, from Australia. Uh, sorry, from Japan, sixty-nine thousand three hundred eighty-four dollars. From the UK, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, hundred forty-six thousand dollars. I mean, but it's not nothing, right? So you know, total um, government agency funding one million nine hundred fifty-five thousand seven hundred eighty-two dollars, right? And then you look at the private sector. So there's all kinds of like cybersecurity companies. Uh, so like Amazon Web Services, which is uh, the cloud company that I believe uh, contains 40% of or 40% of the internet's cloud-based infrastructure is contained within Amazon Web Services. So they donated $100,000. Uh, the AU, uh, the .au domain administration, which is like basically like uh, uh, the domain or the main domain registrar uh, for any. Um, internet-based company that's reserving a domain in Australia and it wants to be identified as being from Australia. So uh, they donated $53,787. Facebook gave $269,000. Google gave $50,000. Microsoft gave $89,500. Uh, Oracle, uh, $31,000, et cetera, et cetera. Now we get to the defense industry. Um, <clears throat> Boeing, uh, 18181 BAE Systems Applied Intelligence, $90,000. Lockheed Martin, $45,454. Uh, Raphael, $18,000. Talis Australia, $130,000, right? And then there's, like, sponsorship for conferences, et cetera, which is where if you go to their sponsors page, uh, that's where you'll see uh, Naval Group, Relative Grumman, Lockheed Martin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Saab, Talis, Raytheon. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's essentially, like, a collection of, companies, organizations, and countries that stand to benefit uh, from regime change operations in foreign countries and the countries that they target. I was actually kind of curious as to why Twitter targeted Mexico of all countries, but you can very clearly see why they would target, for example, like the People's Republic of China, why they would target Russia, why they would target Venezuela, et cetera, because these are countries that have for a very long time uh, been ripe for, uh, for foreign takeover and uh, recolonialism. Or, uh, and... Yeah. And or just like the 
the continuation of the of of these ongoing cold wars, which just continue to funnel money into these defense companies. I mean, like like for them, it's kind of either or. As long as as long as that standoff is still going on, they're still making money. Well, here, okay, so here's here's the part, and and this is where the whole like idea of them being defenders of human rights and of uh, you know verifiable and truthful information falls apart. The ASPI is also heavily linked to the Saudi Arabia, or sorry, to the uh, the government of the United Arab Emirates. So if if you you can't on the one hand call yourself a defender of human rights, uh, call yourself a, a defender of uh, you know uh, of of anti-state propaganda campaigns, uh, believe that you're against terrorism and foreign intervention, etc., and be taking money from the UAE. I just I, I I I don't really know how you can square that circle. So, uh, in uh, August of 2020, the ASPI held a webinar called "Countering Violent Extremism," and it was in conversation with His Excellency Abdullah Al Sabusi of the United Arab Emirates. Right. So he's the uh, UAE uh, ambassador to Australia to talk about ta- counterterrorism perspectives. Focusing on extremists' continued use of online environments, encouraging supporters to commit terrorist actions, and the recent UAE agreement with Israel, as well as, as, well as other continuing conflicts and unrest in the Middle East, now these events influence terrorist extremist propaganda and calls to violence. If if you are aligned with the UAE, and the UAE is aligned with the government of Israel, and the government of Israel, as we know right now, is engaged in an actual genocidal campaign against uh, Palestinian people, particularly in the Gaza region, your your entire raison d'etre, in my opinion, completely falls apart. So this is not a, you know, as Twitter calls it, they're they're looking at um, objective and uh, like non-aligned, non-political forms of um, countering disinformation, and yet the major partner that you've teamed up with is itself not only engaged in the act of spreading this information and encouraging regime change operations but is aligned with governments that are also engaged in the act of genocide against foreign nations. I just, I, I, again, I don't know how you can square that circle. Yeah. It's, it's, um, the idea that the UAE is, uh, a country that's concerned with human rights is certainly something that is not really, doesn't, doesn't really pass muster. Um, the, and I think that it's interesting when you look at the description right. of, at the, I just, I just want to, I just, I, I, I need to get this out. Okay. Not only, not, not even four months before this, actually, I think it was four months to the date. Let me, let me, let, hang on, let me check the dates here. Cause I know that the UN released a uh, war crimes report. Um, it was in August 29th of 2018. And then I believe uh, Genocide Watch um, re-upped the report in April. So there was like a, a massive sort of like a, a PR blitz to say, hey, don't forget about what Saudi Arabia and the UAE are doing in Yemen. So it, it go, goes into, that is the, the, the release, goes into uh, the uh, airstrikes, the tortured detainees, civilians who were raped, the use of child soldiers as young as eight years old. The military coalition that uh, is engaged in this campaign of genocide against Yemeni people is led by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So how the fuck can you have an ambassador to the UAE getting on a conference to talk about anti-terrorism campaigns when the UAE is engaged in a terrorism campaign? Right. And uh, I think, I mean, yeah, obviously it's. It's it's the height of hypocrisy, um, I, but I do want to just talk about this uh, part of the description of this event where they say it will also focus on extremist continued use of online environments, encouraging supporters to commit terrorist actions. The reason that I want uh, just want to concentrate on that for a second is because, again, it shows that ASPI is working overtime to control flow of information, to control how people communicate, um, and to kind of influence how the decisions on who who gets to talk and who 
who doesn't are made. Um, and, you know, obviously I haven't, you know, I, I didn't watch the 45 minute event here. Um, but I think that it does kind of flow into everything that we're talking about with, um, you know, Jennings and the, the cyber, uh, cybersecurity and ASPI's work with Twitter, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's all kind of part of the same thing where they are trying to kind of influence people's opinions on all these different states, including UAE, because the next line says, and I know that you, you went over this already, but like the recent UAE agreement with Israel, as well as other continuing conflicts and unrest in the Middle East. And I mean, you know, you just described like one of those, uh, quote, conflicts yeah. and unrest, right? It, like it is. Yeah. It's, it's a, I, I think unrest is uh, a fairly light, and polite term for like a campaign of genocide against Houthi people. I, 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 I don't know, maybe I think they're treading a little bit lightly there, but it's, I don't know. It's very hard to me uh, to figure out how you can call it uh, unrest and talk about anti-terror uh, when your own state is engaged in a genocidal campaign against Houthi people. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he went on the call. Cause I didn't hear it myself. I was, I didn't, I didn't find out about the conference until, um, I saw the Twitter announcement that they were partnering up with the ASPI, uh, but maybe he went on that conference call to talk about how to effectively engage in terrorism campaigns. I don't know. Could be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 just it's very uh, it's very difficult to like to to look at this and then to kind of you know to really kind of take these guys seriously um, when when they're saying that they have concerns about other countries and their human rights violations, it's just, it just is not, just doesn't really pass muster. And I just think, you know, especially as well, if you kind of combine it with the funding from the U S and, and, and the funding from these private sector defense companies, I, I just don't, I don't know. And like, I don't, but I, do you know how these guys got to have such an influence with social media? Who uh, the ASPI? Yeah, like like how, like how they got to that point. Uh, well, I mean, they've they're on top of being incredibly well funded and staffed by you know respected uh, you know former political figures, uh, um, bureaucrats, uh, war hawks, and academics the world over. Like I said, they have been a seedbed uh, for information regarding. Uh, primarily uh, what is alleged to be happening in Xinjiang. But uh, they've also been part of the the State Department's toolbox, and they're even referred to as such in a, uh, uh, a grant paper uh, from back in 2013. That is, uh, they were used or they were, they were able to help propagate uh, misinformation about the Venezuelan government uh, with help from a grant of about two hundred ninety-five thousand and fifty dollars. Now it didn't go uh, all to the, uh, the ASPI. Um, quite a bit of it went to uh, news and journalism-related organizations um, in Venezuela. Uh, but uh, it was part of the development of the NDI Virtual Toolbox, which is a web platform that, according to uh, the NED. National Endowment for Democracy provides online customized capacity building courses on a range of issues relating to political innovation, yada, yada, yada. So uh, that's sort of like where it got its start. But then you see um, uh, a couple of uh, a couple of initiatives that they, they spearheaded. One of those was the Xinjiang Data Project, uh, which was to, according to them, bring together rigorous empirical research on the human rights situation for Uyghurs and other non-Han nationalities in the Xinjiang Actually, sorry, I just wanted, I'm, I'm looking at the revenue again, yeah, yeah. and I think that we, we actually made a mistake earlier. Or, or was that? So, so we said that it, it was getting $5 million from the U.S. Department of Defense. Mm. It's not. It's getting $5 million from the Australian Department of Defense in a two-year grant to establish a Washington, D.C. office. Oh, my bad, my bad. Okay. So what that means is, so, so what that means is that rather than getting the majority of their funding from the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense, what they get is they get a total of like 1.8 million total from U.S. defense and state. Got it. Okay. Which is still a lot of money. I mean, if you're looking at a $10 million. Uh, it's still, it's, yeah, it's still a major chunk. But no, 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 I did get that wrong. Mia culpa. 
Yeah, yeah. No, no, I did too. I think I was the first one to say that. But but right. I mean, regardless, it's still it's still a large amount of money that's being yeah. put in by the US. Yeah. Uh I mean, you don't often get NGOs that that get that kind of money uh from any government. No, and it's going to it's obviously going to affect how they you know, approach these uh right. these different countries and because like if if you're if your budget is 10 million, you're getting basically 2 million from one source that wants you to do a particular thing. Unless you want to have a shortfall of 20% of your budget, like you got to do it. Right. So, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, Xinjiang data project was interesting to me because it's, it's sort of a mix between, um, countering like, uh, what they call misinformation and propaganda from the Chinese Communist Party, but they also go like, they get super online and they they built this web, uh, basically like these these data points. It's almost like um, that meme of Charlie Day sending in front of like uh, his conspiracy board, like a bunch of like uh, papers and post-it notes that are to, uh, like uh, connected by by red yarn, and uh, they they go after. Uh, news organizations like gray zone so they say that uh you know uh, everybody from like gabby stern to gray zone news to uh xiaoli jian uh that these are all um actors who are engaged in the process of uh misinformation about uh the Xinjiang region oh by the way so uh Li jian is a uh identified by twitter as a uh state government official uh from china so according to that this project what happens is that um Chinese state media passes out information to what are called inauthentic networks. So essentially bought accounts and uh, people who have set up Twitter accounts for the purpose of spreading misinformation. Uh, so maybe they're actual real people, but their entire uh, purpose is to pass along information uh, from Chinese state media. And then uh, these inauthentic networks, as well as pro CCP netizens and influencers, I wonder if I ended up on their list, uh, are then funneling this misinformation from the Chinese state media to fringe news websites where, of which gray zone is named explicitly. And then it feeds back into uh, Chinese. Right. But, 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 officials. but gray zone is still, I mean, you know, but they're still online. Yeah. They're still on Twitter. Like, uh, you know, Blumenthal is still verified on Twitter still, you know, like, so, you know, they're not. It, they're, they're referred to as a fringe. I mean, they're explicitly named. Uh, they don't name them as a fringe news website, but they're the only news organization that is named. And there is another graphic here saying that uh, the CCP influences actors, influ uh, indicating amplification relationships. So where it says fringe news websites, uh, gray zone is somewhere between the overt and covert um, x-axis on this graph here. Um, I'm not exactly sure how they uh, they uh, they quantify any of this, but it's it's right there on the graph. So uh, it, it's, it, it gets everywhere from uh, exposing information and leaked, uh, leaked reports and white papers from the Chinese government all the way down into getting into the super online wars and essentially owning the tankies. Uh, that is all contained in the Xinjiang Data Project, which um, operates in partnership with the University of British Columbia uh, to produce the Xinjiang Documentation Project, which not only... Um, engages in uh, uh, the, the propagation of what they call critical scholarship and shows a timeline of, uh, of, of the, uh, like the Chinese architecture of the oppression of Uyghur people, but also um, includes many sources and citations from, uh, or from people and organizations that were seeded by the ASPI through the Xinjiang Data Project. And if you get into some of those citations, it includes noteworthy defenders of democracy like i don't know marco rubio you know it's like i said the the alignment of the pro-interventionist pro-imperialist right along with progressive defenders of uh human rights free speech etc it's interesting where their interests align yeah yeah i'm not um I have to look so, at that. So I haven't you're, seen asking, that. you're asking the question as to like you know so where did this you know where did they where did this begin and where did they get ramped up? It it was partnership with NED projects going all the way uh, back to Venezuela in 2013, 
Um, but there was a massive uh, increase in uh, funding and awareness of this organization and the reliance on this organization um, for providing info about uh, essentially like uh, state malefactors. Um, this really ramped up in the last uh, four or five years. Yeah, that's and it's interesting that that uh, that it's ramped up in that timeline because you know you can kind of look to uh, that's where a lot of U.S. funding for this kind of stuff started to explode, especially with with the you know after Trump was elected and people were looking around for a reason and and figured that it must be you know, Russia misinformation. And then that kind of, you know, turned into this big boon for a lot of defense industry types uh, and, and, and former CIA as well. Uh, Yeah. uh, I I guess like a really, uh, probably a very good um, analog to this. And it's funny how much crossover there is from this organization, but um, are you aware of the Jamestown foundation? No, I'm not familiar with them. Okay. So it's a DC based um, policy think tank. Um, that was uh, created in the early 80s. Um, so if anybody wanted to defect from the Soviet Union uh, and uh, not only tell their stories, um, but be able to uh, provide greater context for Americans on what's happening um, beyond the Iron Curtain, that was the other uh, purpose of the Jamestown Foundation. So, you know, uh, one of their uh, former board of directors is... Um, you know, friend of the pod, friend of the left, uh, the dearly departed Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, the father of uh, MSNBC's Mika Brzezinski. Uh, there were there were people who've uh, served in the Pentagon, uh, such as uh, Dr. Michael Carpenter. Uh, some of the current board of directors include uh, General Michael B. Hayden, um, also uh, Robert Spaulding, who uh, during the Trump administration. Um, Spearheaded the uh, what was what was essentially the uh, the U.S. China strategy. Um, also, the former president of Radio Free Europe, which, as we know, spawned Radio Free Asia, which, interestingly enough, um, a, a an offshoot of Radio Free Asia, which is the China Human Rights Defenders, uh, an NGO that uh, exists to uh, examine what uh, what sort of human rights abuses are happening. Uh, to Uyghur people and other um, ethnic minorities, non-Han minorities in China, was the first organization to come out with something approximating a solid number of how many uh, Uyghur detainees there were in the XUAR. They originally came up with a number of about 650,000, which has since been inflated by Adrian Zensky of the Jamestown Foundation to a million people, and then one and a half million people, and then three million, and then six million, uh, as recently as last year, they were saying there are more people, more Uyghur people detained by China than there were Jewish people uh, put in concentration camps by Germany during the Holocaust. Uh, and as of the last Associated Press report on the region that I've read, said that they are holding up to a million or more uh, Uyghur people, which was was interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, because it, it uh, climbed down from the 6 million down to 1 million. At least that's the only number that was spoken. But when you say a million or more people, that literally encompasses all of the integers known to exist. So it could be zero. Yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't, trillion, I mean, who knows? yeah, but, but I don't think anybody really thinks that it could mean like a billion. I, I know, I know. But all I'm saying is when you say up to a million, or, like if that, it, if I if I cited a number like up to a million or more, I don't know, like immigrants detained in Canadian immigration detention facilities, my editor would call me on the phone immediately and say, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" Well, right. right. So the right. fact that it ended up getting published in the Associated Press on a global article was wild to me. But the reason I brought up the Jamestown Foundation is because um, a lot of like the same way that the uh, Xinjiang uh, Data Project talks about, and this is why I brought this up in the first place, they talk about uh, uh, the CCP state actors and Chinese state media uh, providing misinformation that is picked up by what are called inauthentic networks, so basically bots and uh, people whose sole reason for being on the internet is to amplify and spread this misinformation, but also like pro-CCP netizens, as they say. But they do the exact same thing. Like, 
the information that is provided uh, to the Jamestown Project um, by Adrian Zenz, who it touts himself as a scholar of Chinese human rights abuses, but doesn't even speak Mandarin, and his academic background and professional background does not include China. Um, the information that he picked up from the Chinese Human Rights Defenders Project was inflated into not only uh, like uh, forced labor facilities, like it went from like vocational facilities to forced labor. It went from a project to introduce family planning to a project to sterilize Uyghur people. So this information that he picks up uh, and then propagates through the Jamestown Foundation is then picked up by the ASPI, propagated to the multitude of organizations like NGOs that rely on the ASPI for information about the uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And then what begins as uh, rumor and speculation or begins as numbers that are much smaller than what we're hearing now in the news are inflated by Zens and this project picked up by the ASPI, passed along to news organizations and NGOs that report this as fact. And the reason that this is so frustrating to me is because when I, like, I don't, I don't speak Chinese myself. I can't read uh, these leaked um, papers that are purported to uh, have been obtained by the ASPI or the New York Times, etc. But what I can do is research, which I'm very fucking good at. And when I compare these sources to each other and try to figure out, like, okay, I, I'm, I, I see that you've cited this number or cited this fact in the footnotes. Let me check where the foot, like, where this information is contained in those footnotes. Oh, hang on a second. They're repeating something else that they are repeating a fact or a number or a figure that they got from somebody else, and it's in their footnotes. And when you chase these footnotes all the way to the bottom, it ends up being the same people and the same organizations. And at the very root of it are reports that were released anywhere between uh, four and eight years ago that have been constantly inflated and given legitimacy by organizations like the ASPI. So this is, I mean, in their, their main focus has been on uh, China and the XUAR, but there's been similar uh, projects engaged with through NED-sponsored organizations in Latin America, in Africa, for example, in Eastern Europe. And the commonality that you find is that when you chase these sources all the way to the bottom of who was the original reporter of this particular number of people that are being oppressed, being preemptively detained, entering forced labor facilities, journalists uh, being detained, possibly murdered, uh, dissidents being disappeared and so forth. And I'm not just talking about, say, accusations against China, but I'm talking about just about everywhere, is you chase these sources all the way down to their bottom and you find the same raft of organizations that oftentimes are sponsored by the National Endowment for Democracy and oftentimes sponsored by the, uh, the coalition between Australia, the United States, and the United Kingdom, oftentimes Canada as well, although we're not necessarily a great player in the sourcing of this information, but we are very damn good at propagating the misinformation. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it, and it's been about an hour. Um, definitely a lot to think about here, and uh, good to break down kind of the backstory of the ASPI, who they are, who their funding comes from. I mean, I think a lot of these groups, you really, you start going down the rabbit hole on them and, and you can find out some interesting stuff. It's, so it's so wild because I come out the other end of it sounding like, like I'm crazy. Like there's <laughs> something wrong with me. Like, and I, I, I try to explain this stuff to normal people and they're like, man, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like you, you got a PlayStation five in your living room. Why don't you go play that for a bit? Like, you, <laughs> You sound wild, but the thing is, like, but this is actually this is true information, and the 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 biggest problem that I have is working in the news media and journalism industry to see so many of of my peers uh, pick up this information and not even look at it critically. They just see that there is a human rights organization that they seem to be rather credible. This is what they're saying, and then you just repeat it without actually checking your sources and figuring out where it's coming from whether these numbers are even accurate, whether it's even an accurate retelling of what those organizations said in the first place, or if it's been picked up um, by people that are looking to bolster their own profiles by inflating accusations of repression, uh, torture, uh, preemptive detention, and all the concomitant uh, human rights abuses by these countries that we've deemed our enemies. Uh, the fact that 
Well, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's definitely a hot topic. I mean, it's one that I think I would like to get more people on as well to talk about because I think that, well, let me just finish here because, because I think that, uh, one thing that I've noticed a lot with, cause, cause I'm not like super familiar with the ins and outs of this debate, but people seem to be talking past each other a lot with this right. stuff. And I think it'd be good if people were just like, actually like being able to, I mean, being I able to be just talk about it. Fucking job and did some research, like actually look into where you like, if you're repeating, if you're repeating this, if you're repeating a statement that a person or organization has said, it behooves you as a journalist to look into whether it's accurate and whether it lines up with their sources. Like that's, that's just the, the basics of journalism. You're supposed to verify your sources and fact check your information. And, I, and I'm not saying that like everything that we're hearing is false. I think that there is uh, where it's been reported in say like Venezuela, China, uh, Russia, et cetera. I, I, I'm, more than willing to believe that there are human rights abuses taking place. Like I, I, I don't buy that there has been no preemptive detention of Uyghur people, or that uh, there there hasn't been, in some sense, compelled. I don't want to say compelled labor or forced labor, uh, but compelled attendance at what they call vocational schools and so forth. They have a choice to attend them. Are they being uh, surveilled? Uh, yeah, uh, it seems like they are. And I, w- I would even say that uh, you know Chinese state officials have attempted to justify this. So I'm not saying that there's nothing behind it whatsoever and it's all fabrications, but behind those kernels of truth then come the ratcheting up of uh, human rights defense rhetoric, which is basically like imperialist, like like progressive uh, pinkwashing. That is like we, we cloak ourselves uh, behind the auspices of the defense of human rights and then using that uh, justification – we intervene in these countries, whether it's interfering politically or just like outright militarily. And then you end up with situations like Libya, where we went in under the auspices of defending innocent Libyan civilians from being disappeared by their government, uh, from, uh, from Gaddafi, I don't know, I guess like giving his soldiers Viagra so they can just go out and rape people. Like these are the kinds of accusations that we were hearing before the bombing and invasion of Libya. And the, the end result that we have now is that there are people like African migrants that are uh, traveling uh, through or nearby Libya uh, as refugees to try and get to um, to get to Europe or to get overseas, and they're being intercepted uh, and sold off as slaves. Like that, that is the situation that we ended up creating because we're so willing to believe in these narratives and to believe in ourselves as human rights defenders that we will legitimately go into these countries completely fuck them up and then take no responsibility for it whatsoever. And the very same journalists that were touting these human rights narratives will then just get to continue writing, never apologize, never back off what they said in the first place, never examine their previously existing positions. They just keep doing this. And it's incredibly frustrating. And what I was trying to say before was that one of the big problems here is that forum, even as, as uh, there is like uh, um like a uh, a coalescing of media organizations that they're uh, they're consolidating, uh, they're being bought out by larger organizations and so on. Uh, so even as larger money is getting involved in the business of news, foreign policy reporting is is absolutely fucking abysmal. You you don't necessarily have reporters that are being hired that have experience that can speak the language uh, that are academically trained or perhaps lived in these countries for long periods of time that are being assigned to go to different countries and do reporting, oftentimes what happens is that the Foreign Policy Bureau is a few people, um, a couple of which might live overseas and report not just on where they are uh, stationed overseas, but on the entire region as if living in, let's say, Beijing makes you a region on like all of East Asia and the South Pacific. Uh, And then when they send information back, much of which is sourced by dubious NGOs that are sponsored by defense industry, by uh, the U.S. State Department, by Departments of Defense from various countries, they'll report these matters as if they are a fact. And when they hit the editor's desks um, on our side of the ocean, nobody is checking this up. It just goes right to print. And that's where you find a ton of misinformation coming out about Latin America, about East Asia, about Africa, etc. And it's as, as somebody who's just interested in arriving at 
the actual truth beyond all of that spin, it's incredibly frustrating because it takes hours and hours and hours of research to untangle all of the bullshit and figuring out what actually happened. Yeah, well, I, I, I can say from experience that that is a uh, that's an issue that goes from local news all the way up to national. So it's certainly not unique to that. Um, Q, I want to really thank you for coming on and and for having this uh, really interesting discussion. Um, that I guess I guess we kind of use ASPI as a frame to talk about a lot of different things, and 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 I thought it was really really interesting. I, so, I just, I, I just, I, you know, I, I just find it really wild that uh, this organization of all organizations is responsible for determining uh, fact from fiction, uh, combating fake news on Twitter, and uh, getting accounts out of here that are propagating misinformation uh, when the organization itself is literally in the business of propagating misinformation. For sure. We'll have to have you come back on and talk about uh, Canadian mining as well. For sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A, another that's, fun topic. Yeah. Uh, and we, we can also talk about how uh, um, the articles that I've written on Canadian mining exploits abroad get continuously rejected by Canadian publications because they're all afraid of slap lawsuits. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks. Uh, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, if, if you're listening on the app, please uh, give Flashpoint a subscribe. And um, if you're listening on replay, then uh, on, on, on desktop or or on Android. Uh, we'll hope to see you live in a couple months here on the app. All right. Uh, thanks a lot, guys, and talk to you soon.